politics is irrelevant, it doesn't matter. People are moved by children and a suffering child is, uh, impacts you at the most basic core of your humanity. You know, from my earliest ages, when I was a young teenager, I was always reading books about history and politics. Uh, my parents were um, social activists. They raised us with very basic human ideals and values. One of those very basic human ideals and values was to support underdogs, to support people who are struggling for equality and freedom and justice. So I would read a lot about those struggles in history and those struggles which were going on today, whether it was the black liberation movement in South Africa, um, the movements of decolonization that was happening in other parts of the world. And then also I became very interested in trying to understand the Middle East issue from a historical perspective but also from one that is based in basic human values of social justice and freedom. And this was in my teen years and as I went to university. And during that course, I also, the first intifada began. And that was a historic monumental time in the Palestinian national movement in the Middle East. It was an inspiring time for people all over the world to see an unarmed, population who had endured a generation of occupation and more than one generation of displacement uh, rising up against one of the world's most powerful military establishments, countries, powers, and struggling and sacrificing for freedom. And that very much connected with me, partly because I'm from a, town, a small college town in Ohio called Kent, and we had an incident in 1970 where soldiers came onto our university and killed four students, unarmed students. So being raised, I don't remember that, but I was raised under the legacy of that terrible incident in a small town. So when I saw, and we saw in the first intifada, the same images of soldiers shooting unarmed youth, people my age at that time, it connected with me, it resonated with me as it would, uh, uh, more than it would have with a student in another university that didn't grow up in a small town where that had happened. So I sought further the knowledge and truth about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And it was a perfect timing to have a better understanding because there was a lot of attention being um, directed towards what was happening on the ground in Palestine during the Intifada. I had a chance to go there <coughs> as a college student, as part of a human rights delegation of fellow college students, not from my university, and I didn't know them. But we were put together to go and see firsthand what was happening on the ground in the West Bank and Gaza in December of 1988, which was the first anniversary of the first year of the Palestinian first uprising. And going there and seeing firsthand and living among people in the homes and seeing firsthand the struggle of the Palestinian people, the unity of the Palestinians at that time. It was truly a grassroots unified uprising, unarmed uprising of rich and poor, Christian and Muslim, townspeople, villagers, refugees. Everyone was unified behind the desire to be free. 
and I saw that and experienced it for three weeks and it changed my life. You know, I saw refugee camps, I saw settlements, I saw and met families whose homes had been destroyed and whose lives had been destroyed for no reason other than the fact that they were Palestinian and they were on the land that somebody else wanted. I went back to my university uh, to finish my degree in international relations. I became more active on this issue from a perspective of trying to educate my fellow Americans on what I had seen and what this issue meant. Uh, I heard about a boy who was injured and uh, his story was very unique. He had been injured by a group of soldiers who had thrown an anti-tank grenade at his family in Hebron, uh, a very contentious town, um, even more than the most of them in Palestine. And he had been badly maimed. Uh, he had lost his legs, he would lost his hand, he would lost an eye. He was just uh, 11 or 12 years old. Um, so I went over uh, in May of 1990 and uh, got these two brother and sister and brought them over uh, to the U.S. The first day that they arrived th that we had a press conference arranged by the hospital and it what became a big story. It was in the front page of the newspapers, it was on the television local news and these were the first two injured Palestinian children to ever come to the United States for treatment. Palestine's a small community. People heard about these kids who went to America and started uh, approaching me about how they could uh, sorry, they started approaching me with children who needed treatment. And they had a neighbor, they had a relative, they heard about this kid, uh, you know, there were so many more children who needed treatment. And so I started placing kids in different hospitals all over the United States for free. And uh, during the course of that work, um, my older sister, Christy, and I um, decided to start a nonprofit because I had gone to so many nonprofit organizations in Washington and asked them if they would sponsor this initiative of bringing Palestinian kids to the United States. And unfortunately, all of the groups I went to were not interested in helping us. So we started our own. The Palestine Children's Relief Fund was born in 1991, 1992. We got our uh, official IRS tax exempt status in the United States. And I went back to Palestine. Uh, I would come and go and went back to you know look for more kids who needed help. I'd already helped three or four or five get treatment in the States. And one day I was in Jerusalem at a place I was staying and a social worker contacted me. I work for the YMCA. I help a lot of kids who need treatment. I heard you help kids go to America. Can I meet you? I said, sure. You know, so I was waiting and she came and um, we fell in love and we started a life. We, you know, uh, as people do, and uh, we, although she was a Palestinian woman, older than me, I was an American guy, it was not common or extremely uncommon or not at all ever happened that, <laughs> that a Palestinian woman and an American guy in Palestine would have a relationship. But she was a very strong woman. She wanted to have love in her life. I loved her and she loved me. So we decided to get married. In January of, of 1993, we got married in Ramallah. And she was a social worker. And so she and I started building the organization together. It was established, but when she came on, we became a team. 
I would arrange the treatment, I would do the fundraising, I would arrange the logistics, I would contact the doctors, and she would take care of the kids. She spoke the language, she was a social worker, she knew all aspects of helping children at that level. So we were a team and uh, built the organization from nothing, you know, and we just took off and we just grew. And also as the Palestinians ran their own hospitals, we decided to start sending doctors there. We could be more effective if we have a team of doctors come and operate on 30 kids as volunteers, uh, then we have sending one child abroad, you know, and it's the same cost. It's a plane ticket because these doctors were doing it for free and they could teach. Um, so we started bringing doctors in, started sending children out, and the organization continued to grow. People liked our work. Um, they believed in uh, what we were doing. Um, we continued to show people the results of their support. People saw firsthand in their community kids coming who are sick or injured and leaving healed. And that had a huge impact. And um, so over that 17-year period of when we started the organization until 2009, PCRF had just grown and become so much bigger and known especially in the United States and even here in the Gulf. I had come in 1995 to the first time to uh, Dubai and started just meeting people and trying to build the PCRF connection to this part of the world. There are so many good people here from all walks of life, particularly Palestinians, who were an untapped kind of resource for our organization to uh, gain support for, and I did that. And it took a long time, but it was, it was worth it. Um, we, were, we had established a good relationship with um, Sheikh Mohammed bin Maktoum Al Rashid Charitable Foundation, and we had an agreement with them in 2007 to bring kids here who, for medical care. And so over the next couple of years, we were bringing children to the UAE for treatment as well as to the United States and wherever we could get them treatment for free. And then at the end of 2008, actually on Christmas Day, December 25th of 2008, we were here in, in Dubai. We were at Emirates Hospital on Jumeirah Road. And um, my wife had been sick for a month. I remember a month over Thanksgiving, like a month before that. She was, you know, have, feeling very without energy, feeling like she had a virus. And it went on for a month. She had taken antibiotics. She wasn't uh, getting any better. So we were at the hospital and she still felt blah, you know, like she didn't have any energy, like something was wrong. And, um, and I could tell she had lost a lot of weight. Uh, but she was such a strong woman and such a proud woman, as so many Palestinian and Arab women are. Uh, she didn't want to bother anybody with it. I said, just go and get a blood test done. Maybe you have a viral infection or you're taking the wrong antibiotics or something. And she did. We were in the hospital. She went and got some blood tests. And I remember I took my two daughters. We had two daughters then. We had Dima and Jenna. So we had a family. We were very happy. We were doing what we wanted to do in our life. We were building an organization. We were helping her country, Palestine. She was very proud of that. Um, we were doing something that she loved doing as a social worker, something I loved doing as, um, as an, an activist. Um, so I took my two daughters across the street. There was a playground. And I said, just we'll be across the street. And I remember she walked across the street, and she just had that look of, of fear on her face. And she told me, I have my blood test, and they told me I have leukemia. And I didn't know what leukemia was at the time. I was surprising because we were doing so much work in the health sector, but we weren't doing cancer care. And, but I knew it was cancer. So we went to the American hospital and had another blood test done. And 
it was cancer, you know, and so she stayed in the ICU there. Um, and the next day we flew uh, to the U.S. Uh, immediately and went directly to the hospital from the airplane. And, and our lives were never the same. Within eight months, uh, she had died after a blood, uh, after a bone marrow transplant. And during the early period of that time, it was the war in Gaza between December of 2008 and January of 2009. There was a, the first really big war on Gaza where large-scale bombings were taking place. Every day there were huge casualties, civilian casualties, children under apartment homes that were being bombed and so on. And I just remember my wife, it was, uh, you know, the beginning of January and she'd started the chemotherapy where they inject poison into your body to kill the cancer. And, you know, her hair was starting to fall out and it was just a terrifying time for her. She had two children. We had a young family. We had a two-year-old and a 12-year-old. And she was at the prime of her life. And she was sitting at her computer just trying to help these kids. She was sitting in the hospital with chemotherapy going into her veins, getting skinnier, losing her hair, feeling sick. And she was worried about those kids in Gaza. And it was just an amazing act of courage and compassion and humanity that my wife had. Um, but it, it wasn't enough. I never believed for a second that she would die. I thought God would select her as one of the survivors because of who she was, because of what we were doing. You know, how could you take such a such beautiful person? She was an amazing human being, but also a humanitarian. How could you punish a family that was so happy uh, and had just started, you know? Um, but no one knows <laughs> the reasons why God does what he does or the mysteries of life. <laughs> they remain unanswered. And so my wife died on July 15th, 2009. And I was suddenly a single father. I had watched her die slowly. My fam my daughters had watched her. Every everybody watched her die slowly. She was very brave. Um, but it wasn't enough. Uh, all of her courage and all of our love and all of our hope wasn't enough t for her to live. And I decided to move back to Palestine uh, a few months later, as I said, to focus my grief and pain towards something good. I had promised my wife, we promised each other, I would raise the daughters with their Palestinian identity and keeping the language and the connection to her family. And I wanted to, my organization to continue to grow and be stronger and bigger. So I moved back and, you know, during those years of uh, 2010, 11, 12, 13, just put all my energy into PCRF and my family, my daughters. And the organization just grew better, bigger. So many people heard about Huda and her courage and her humanity and our love affairs, how you know, unusual it was for an American guy and a Palestinian woman to find each other and to have this happy life and then the tragedy. Um, and, you know, it gave us an, uh, this kind of story that resonated with people on a human level. And as bad as she suffered in the U.S., as hard as light her death was, and it was, she suffered terribly, I mean, unimaginably, she would have suffered worse in Palestine. You know, the treatment of the the of people with cancer there, even to this day, is far below what it should be. But for children, it was non-existent. And I run a charity. I run an organization 
uh, that helps children with medical care. So I made a decision to start a project to raise money to build a cancer hospital in Palestine for children because there wasn't one. And those kids were suffering just like my wife suffered. And I wanted to do it in her name, to name it after her. Um, so through fundraising initiatives by thousands, hundreds and thousands of people all over the world, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, running the Dubai Marathon, uh, Wissam Jayusi rode his motorcycle across the world. There were so many in individuals all over the world gave money for this project. And in 2013, we opened the Huda al-Masri Pediatric Cancer Department in Beit Jala Hospital in Bethlehem, the first public cancer department in the West Bank. And it was the greatest accomplishment of my professional life. Um, my daughters cut the ribbon and um, they're so proud to see their mom's name and picture on the wall. And it was um, really something that gave, continued to give my life meaning and purpose. And more importantly, it continued her legacy. She deserved to have her name immortalized in a way that healed others because she was such a healer. And it also showed again the power of collective unified efforts to do good. You know, if we try individually to have an impact, you can have an impact. But the impact's much greater when you work together, especially for something that is noble, something that is uh, healing, something that brings love and compassion to people and hope. And so building a cancer department through private donations and not from one person or one specific country. It wasn't any money from any government. It was all just people all over the world who knew my wife, who loved my wife, who loved Palestine, who loved the idea, who believed in this type of humanitarian initiative coming together. And the accomplishment continues until this day. It's an amazing center. It still treats children for free. It's healed hundreds of lives. And it still remains a symbol of, of her compassion and kindness and dedication. So we started a really taking on bigger projects. And one thing we noticed about our cancer department in Beit is the challenge of kids in Gaza getting out and getting treatment because the Gaza Strip is closed generally and doesn't have easy access in and out uh, for people. So we decided to bring the service to them as we have been doing with hundreds of volunteer medical teams going there and treating thousands of kids every year and continuing to bring children out and doing all kinds of humanitarian projects, we decided to build a cancer department uh, in Gaza, like we did in Bejala. And during one evening, we had a fundraiser in New York City uh, to raise money for this project. And um, there was a doctor there, a pediatric cancer doctor for children, from New York, who was finishing her fellowship, who came to me after, she was at the event by chance, a friend had given her a ticket, and she came to me and introduced herself. I heard you speak about your work in cancer in Palestine. I am a pediatric oncologist. I speak Arabic. My family's from Sudan. And so over the next year, I, you know, she didn't have an American passport yet. So we would talk and I would send her cases sometimes for her to review and you know, encouraged her to get a passport so she could come over and volunteer because we needed that kind of expertise. She was really a very good doctor. And eventually, you know, our bond grew very deep and uh, we fell in love. And 
uh, in 2016, I remarried to a cancer doctor. And she then moved back to Palestine with me and started working in the cancer department where named after my first wife, which I find really a beautiful thing. And I believe, you know, my first wife came for a purpose and she accomplished what that purpose was and God called her home. And now I'm very happy again, I have another daughter and um, very honored that I'm able to do this work and that I found a partner who is, is dedicated to helping, serving people and especially in Palestine. She believes very strongly in the Palestinian cause as I do and has now dedicated her life as I have to the Palestinian struggle. And so this is, you know, in the 30 years I've kind of had a full life of so many positive, amazing accomplishments thanks to meeting so many amazing accomplished people who've helped. I've also had obvious unimaginable tragedy of watching someone you love die and the pain and the healing that is involved in that. Well, I had two daughters to raise. So when you're in a position where people are depending on you to not just to to live, they were children, but also for strength and for them to get through losing their mother, you have to force yourself every day to live life with hope and smile and find again happiness, however hard that is. And I also had a greater purpose. I believe deeply in that our spirits and our consciousness survive our bodies and that this material existence that we live today called life here on planet Earth is only a temporary state and we're here for a purpose and that purpose is greater than our day-to-day existence and to fulfill that purpose and to reach that level of uh, to go to that level where your spirit achieves its purpose requires meeting God's challenges and him taking Huda from me was a challenge for me to see how evolved I was as, as, as a spirit if I was able to endure build something so beautiful like PCRF where you're serving a people and a cause which is very pure and noble and to have this very deep happy love and family which was a dream for me and then to have it taken away was truly a challenge from God that was if I am an evolved soul then I have to accept God's action and continue on with love. If you believe love is the core essence of life then you have to be able to express that and follow that through the hard times, not just the easy times. It's easy to be a good human when you have a great wife and you're fulfilling your life mission and you're successful. And Can you be a loving, kind, compassionate, deep, decent person when everything's taken away from you and you go through a horrific experience of watching someone you love deeply die? And if you can, 
then you've passed God's test. And I feel like I did, and he rewarded me with another amazing woman. So hopefully that will, I won't have any more significant tests like that. But life's an ongoing test every day. And I often fail my tests, you know, from God or my spiritual tests. And that's a daily struggle we all have to endure. But the big ones, hopefully I can always try to take them head on and continue to be a decent, compassionate, caring person. I remember... I'll go back a little bit. When I first brought these two kids out of Palestine, the first kids I ever brought before I started PCRF from Hebron. And I went and got them and I was crossing the bridge in, um, to Jordan. And I've never gone that way before. I'd always come in through the airport. But at that time I was leaving from the bridge for the first time and I didn't know when you leave you had to pay an exit tax because I'd never gone that way before. And I, had z I didn't have any money at all. I had these two injured Palestinian kids. I was 23, 24 years old. Um, and I was trying to get them to Jordan so we could continue our journey to the States so they could get treatment. There's both of them in wheelchairs. And I had to pay an exit tax and I had zero money. And I was shocked. I was panicked. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have credit cards. I didn't have anything. And I just remember this very kind face of a man emerged out of this crowd of people. And he just saw I was in, he just must have seen or felt I was in utter distress. And he just came to me and said, is there something wrong? Can I help you? And I just explained it to him. And he just went over to the window and paid our tax and disappeared. And I never saw him again. And that simple act of kindness from this man, who I have no idea, I feel like it was a dream, but it happened. I would love to find that person today and just say, look what you did. Because our organization, which has healed thousands and thousands of lives and has these running cancer departments and building these huge projects, these intensive care units and Thousands of doctors have gone and volunteered and treated kids and this amazing organization which has done so much, so much positive. It was just one man's act of kindness that maybe made a, the difference between, maybe I would have never been able to get out, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so the small gestures of kindness can have such a ripple effect. You don't know. That man never knew. Yeah. So I think it's important to overcome our challenges in life and try to constantly, I mean, your question, going back to that originally question, it's, that's our biggest struggle. I mean, we're all, we all know deep down in our hearts and our souls that there is something more to this life than the material world. Even atheists know that. <laughs> it doesn't make sense from a science point of view, and I agree with that. It doesn't make sense. But we know it. It's an innate feeling, you know. And, but it's layered on top on top of that kind of deep spiritual connection that we have to humanity or the universe are these layers of materialism, ego, fear that bury that connection to something deeper and prevent us sometimes from feeling it or using it as a tool to connect with humanity. So it's a constant struggle to and especially now because our economic systems in general are, con are developed to encourage materialism and consumerism and all of these behaviors which are contrary to spirituality, you know? We know for a fact that the more stuff you have, the less happy you are. Unless you start giving it away. Unless you start seeing that you can make an impact on life that you can change humanity, that you can heal, you know? Yeah. My encouragement 
first and foremost in your early years is to not think about the material aspects of what you want to do. Think about finding something that makes you happy and satisfied. And what makes you happy in life shouldn't always be self-serving. Try to tune out the material world. Find yourself what makes you happy, what drives you. Service to others is very important. And pursue it. And it doesn't have to be anything anyone else does. I found my path. I'm lucky. I don't think anybody has to follow my path. Remember and reconnect with each other and get past the fear because there's two things in life. The, the, the yin-yang of the human condition is not love and hate. It's love and fear. Because hate comes from fear, right? You're not... The hatred you have for others is that you fear for them. Love is, is natural. It's part of who we are in our hearts and in our soul. It's a natural instinct. A baby loves her mother the first time she opens her eyes and sees her. Um, but, it, you know, a, you don't hate somebody. You might fear them and that hate comes from that. And so we need to get past fear. And fear is very, it's part of our condition as well. It's part of the human condition. It's deeply ingrained in our DNA. It's part of our survival mode. But fearing others just because they're different, whether in skin color, whether in religion, whether in language, culture, gender identity, whatever. If people are different, you don't fear them. You learn to accept them and to love them. And we're all human beings on this planet for a short period of time. We're destroying the planet through our hatred, through our fear, through our consumption of limited resources, through our lack of vision for what is a sustainable life. Um, and that has to stop and that has to change, especially with the younger generation. We've kind of screwed it up, our parents and our generation. So it's time for the young people to temper their desire for ma the material world and um, find a path forward that enables you to find your purpose, but also to understand there's limits on the way that we have and others ha don't have, you know. Just remember we're all brothers and sisters on this planet. We all are in this together. Life is a, ga life is a journey that we're all on together. And loving each other, taking care of each other is the core mission that you should pursue in your life. Everything else is not as important. So do that and remember to exhale.